Please stay with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days, respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the eyes of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the fire, from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that shall, that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Are tracking along in a series through first and second Samuel, which we're calling the scroll of Samuel, because as we continue to say, it's one story and it was one scroll initially, and so while we've divided it for purposes of, this is a very unsecure uh, stand. I'm going to make a choice right now to invest in the rest of the teaching by switching stands. So, one moment. All right. 
There we go. All righty. Uh, so in this, these two books, which again are one and telling one story, whenever you are in a text, and I've said this before and we'll continue to say it as we go throughout the series, whenever you are in a book of scripture, you will find there are these major themes that are going to be told again and then told in different ways and then told in backwards ways and reversed ways, and it's like a fugue if you are familiar with compositional and high art musical terms. And a fugue is this. It is a melody that is played, and then it is played again, except it changes slightly. And then sometimes it's played completely backwards, but it's the same melody. And then sometimes now it goes to the changed one and plays that one backwards. And then it's going to go back to the original except it's going to change a different part. And then at the end, it's going to go back to the original all over again. So a fugue is this point of like playing with the melody in order to discover new parts about it. It's as if you're rotating a diamond and you're seeing different facets and different faces of the diamond, but yet it's the same thing. And not only is that true of any individual book, that's also true of scripture as a whole. And this story is going to highlight that really well. And so let's jump into it in... 1 Samuel 11, we see we're coming straight out of the moment when God is going to choose the first king and begin the monarchy, which the monarchy begins after the story of Judges, which is the preceding book chronologically. Again, Ruth is stuck in between your Bibles or between Judges and Samuel, but that was not in the original text. It was meant to flow from Judges straight into Samuel. And out of Judges, you had that God was saying, hey, when Israel gets called out to be his people, he says, I'm going to rule over you as your king. This is going to be a theocracy. I'm going to give you law. I'm going to give you wisdom, and you are going to follow after me. And then he does give a way of working that out in real time in the book of Judges because it says, okay, when people go wrong or when people need wisdom and God needs to be communicated or communicate through someone, I'm going to appoint a judge. And throughout the book of Judges, it's going to regularly say the people did what was right in their own eyes. And this is a phrase basically say that everyone is looking out for number one and creating chaos. And so the judges regularly in that time are going to step in, are going to fight a battle, or are going to bring repentance upon the people. And then all throughout Judges, you continue, and even the last line of the book of Judges is that people did what was right in their own eyes. And so in the midst of it, it's not fully, doesn't seem like it's working, at least not to the Israelite people. But God says, hey, this is still the chosen way that I'm going to use. And so then Samuel begins, and Samuel is the final judge. And he's a good judge. He leads the people to peacefulness, but the people come, and at one point, as we read last week, Samuel is looking to set up his two sons as the future judges, except they're corrupt. And so the people see this, and they're like, okay, let's end this judge thing. We want a king like all the other nations. And we want a king who's going to protect us and is going to go forward and fight our battles for us. And so Samuel says, this is a bad idea. This is you rejecting God as your king. And they say, we don't care. And so then Samuel is told by God to install the first king, which he finds is Saul. And Saul at the city of Mizpah is installed and anointed. And as he is anointed, the, is the Mashiach or the Messiah, to be the Messiah or to be the Christ, is to be the anointed one. 
And so Saul becomes the first Messiah, Messiah, or the first Christ, or the first anointed one. And so, as the anointed one, immediately he goes back to his own land of Gibeah. And the next story is that it says the Ammonites, who are a constant thorn in the people of Israel's, uh, their, their experience or them being in the promised land are continually trying to attack them. Even in previous chapters, it shows the Ammonites and the Philistines attacking Israel on both sides. And these are actually an offshoot of the Israelite people. There was a time when Lot experiences adulterous sex with, or not adulterous sex, but just uh, a sexual night with his daughters, and it all goes really weird, and these are the things that you like read over in the Bible, and you're like, is this really in the Bible? And yes, it's really in the Bible. And out of that, the Ammonite people diverge from the Israelite people, and they continue to attack and uh, the Israelite people time and time again. And this time they do, and it says, uh, Nahash is their leader, their king. Nahash is directly translated as the snake. And so now we have the snake showing up with the Ammonite people, and he threatens Jabesh Gilead. And Jabesh Gilead is a, a clan or a city in Israel, one of the most, uh, one that's on the border and, uh, of the Ammonite uh, territory and the Israelite territory. And the Ammonite territory, or the Ammonites say, they, hey, this was originally our territory and we're taking it back. And so Jabesh Gilead is being threatened, and then they ask for a treaty. Now, what they're probably asking for in this treaty when they're saying, like, hey, we'll be submissive to you, is they're, they're, saying, they're saying, we're going to pay taxes. Like, you can let us live, and we will forever pay tribute to you and pay taxes to you. And then Nahash, sa or Nahash says, okay, we can do that. But my one condition is that I get to gouge out everyone's right eye. Now, Yes, he says in the scripture that this is going to bring, bring disgrace to all of Israel. But whenever a detail is specified in scripture, such as, hey, it doesn't just say, I'm going to gouge out one of your eyes. It says, I'm going to gouge out their right eye. And again, whenever details are put out in scripture, they are meant to make you ask, why that detail? Because as you notice, a lot of scripture is kind of vague on a lot of details. Like, it's not like where we experience, like, realistic fiction or fiction of any kind where when an author sets the scene, they talk about it being like a quiet, foggy morning on the meadow and the birds are chirping in the background and the sun is rising and piercing through the fog and creating the beautiful sunrise. Like, we, the Scripture's not going to do that. They're going to be very sparse on details for reasons of, A, that writing Scripture and papyrus and these things was expensive and you put it as in few words as possible, but that's actually not even fully the reason. The reason is, hey, when they use sparse details, the details that they put are meant to call something to mind. And so it doesn't say, I'm going to gouge out an eye. It says, I'm going to gouge out your right eye. So again, this is not just to bring shade to them, uh, shame to them. It's because of this. When you aim a bow and arrow, if you are right-handed, which most people are, you aim with your right eye. Secondly, if you have a shield, you would hold your shield up with your hand, and you would uh, have one eye covered, and you would peer out, so you'd have it in your left hand, you'd, you'd be covering your left eye, and you would look out over the shield through your right eye. So, if you are now without a right eye, you can't aim a bow, you can't hold and hide behind a shield, and so you are left unable to defend yourself. However, what you still can do is farm. And if you can farm, you can create a profit, 
and you can pay taxes. So we have a people who realize what they're going to be doing. They're not only just going to be taken over, they're not only just going to be disgraced, they're going to become the slaves of Nahash and the Ammonites. And so uh, Jabesh Gilead comes with this idea, and they say, okay, we get a week. Like, give us some time, please, to like, ask for help. And if not, we will surrender ourselves to you. And Nahash says, okay. And you ask, ask yourself, why does he take this deal? Like, why does he give them extra time? And there's a couple things going on here. First, throughout the entire text, there is going to be a regular theme, part of the fugue, that is going to say, God elevates the humble, and he brings disgrace and levels down the proud. And so the first one we see is Nahash is simply prideful, saying like, okay, go ahead, bring on more people. The more people you bring on, the more people I will destroy, and I get a bigger spoil of war. Beyond that, if they don't get anyone, if no one comes, they say, hey, we're going to surrender. And Nahash realized, hey, this is strategically good. I get to take over this city. They become my slaves, pay taxes and tribute to me forever, get this territory back for the Ammonites, and I don't have to lose a single man. They're just surrendering. And so he takes a calculated risk. And he has reason to believe that none of the Israelites want to help Jabesh Gilead. As to why, we'll come back to that detail. Put a pen in that. And so, they ask for seven days. This is very little time to get around the place of Israel, and so they go to Gibeah. Gibeah is one of the nearest cities. It is also a city of the Benjaminites. And the Benjaminites, when they come and they tell them what's going on in Jabesh Gilead, uh, the Benjamites there in uh, Gibeah begin to cry immediately and weep. And why are they so emotional? Well, because you find out in the book of Judges that the people of Benjamin were actually given the city of Jabesh Gilead to uh, take as wives and to intermarry, and they become very closely together as family. Now, why they get together and why they get uh, roped together as the Benjamin taking their wives is important in another story, but that's part of the fugue later. And so Saul is in Gibeah, and as they tell all the people what's going on, and they begin weeping because this is their family, that they have now been, these two cities are very interconnected, Saul comes in from the field. And as he does, he is told this story. And the first thing you ask, okay, like, if Saul just became king, why is he out, like, farming in the field? It says he comes back behind the oxen, meaning he was plowing. And part of it is which there's a transition period of when Saul is anointed king and when that actually all goes down. You see that he was anointed king at Mizpah in the previous chapters, but he is going to, at the end of this, be re-anointed as a public ceremony before all of Israel, where all of Israel comes and submits to him as king. So there's this inter-period where he's back at home and he's doing his humble task of farming. And so you have a humble Saul against a prideful Nahash. And in the, the moment of him hearing this, it says the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he takes two oxen of a yoke, and he cuts them up into little pieces, and he sends that amongst all of Israel and says, if you don't come and help the people of Jabesh Gilead, this will become, you will become like this. It's not just your oxen will be cut up. He's actually referring to the fact of, I will destroy all of you. 
And so it says the people are terrified, and they come to help Jabesh Gilead. Again, why do they need to be having so much motivation to help Jabesh Gilead? We'll get back to that. So it says that he musters 30,000 men from Israel and 30, or 3,000 from Judea. So this is interesting. The tribes of Israel and Judea, the one tribe of Israel is going to divide into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, Israel and then Judea. And that hasn't happened yet, but yet we're already beginning to have moments where they are referred to separately, even though they are one kingdom still. This suggests possibly just the foreshadowing of like, hey, this is going to come, in fact, in the monarchy, in David's monarchy and his sons is where it's going to divide. And so like, hey, at the end of this book, actually, uh, it's actually the David's sons to Solomon and then the divide happens. Or there's some sort of schism that's already beginning to rise up between these two parts of the kingdom. Regardless of what it is, they form the second largest army that Israel has ever formed to take out the Ammon or to crush the Ammonites. Now, that of course makes you ask, what was the first largest army that Israel has ever formed? That's an important detail that we'll get back to in the fugue. So, they win the battle over the Ammonites and they crush the snake. And as you read this story, again, there's like these little details that happen that if you have read scripture before, or if you were like the Israelites who have memorized the Torah, the first five books, some of them have then gone on to memorize all of scripture at this point. They were completely shaped by, again, at this point, the first five books of scripture. It is all their common cultural knowledge. They all, when they hear certain details, are going to perk up. And the one that I got, uh, because, and, and maybe some of you got, because I, like in this time, again, that time, they would all memorize the Pentateuch, the first five books. Today, only I have memorized the first five books. And so what you may have understood or what you caught was the point where they cut up all the oxen and they send them amongst the people. Because there's a story in Judges 19. And in Judges 19, you have a Levite traveling through Israel, and he's traveling with his concubine. And he comes to a city, Gibeah, which is the, a city of the Benjaminites. And there he's taken in by a man in this town. He says, hey, if you're coming through Gibeah, at first the servants say, like, we should not camp here. Like, this is, you know, territory where Levites and apparently Benjamites are not getting along. And but he says, like, no, we're going to stop here. And a kindly man from Gibeah takes him into their house. And then the worthless men of the Gibeonites, as it says, are, or of the, yeah, the Gibeonites and the Benjamites, are going to come to this man's house. And they said, hey, we saw that you took on a Levite, and we want you to throw him out that we might have our way with him. And this man says, whoa, no, 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 no. This is, please don't disgrace this man. Don't disgrace ourselves. I will give you my daughter and this man's concubine. And they refuse. They say, no, we want the man. But yet, to order to save the man who is hosting them, the host pushes out the concubine, and it says, they abuse her till morning. And she comes to the doorpost and lays down dead. And the Levite opens the door, and he finds the concubine and cuts her into 12 pieces 
and sends those 12 pieces amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, we all gather together to judge Benjamin. And they do gather. They gather at Mizpah, the same place Saul was coronated. And as they gather there, they come with a point of where they all decide to go and they gather together and they gather an army, the first largest army that Israel has ever gathered. And so here now is our largest army and they all raise up against the Benjamites and in this time they uh, let's see, they muster the largest army. Ah, yes, there's also a priest named Phineas, another important name if you've been tracking along in Samuel so far. And the priest of Phineas leads the people to victory, and they destroy Gibeah by fire. Oh, and then they all afterwards, by the way, have a little meeting. And they said, hey, everyone showed up. Like, all the clans came together to judge Benjamin, except we noticed one city, one clan didn't show, and it was Jabesh Gilead. And so Jabesh Gilead was the only tribe who doesn't fight. And so at that point, they, after destroying Gibeah and destroying the Benjamites, they decide to judge them by saying, hey, no one marries with them. We're going to try to wipe them off the face of the earth. But then they get so mad at Jabesh Gilead, and they say, okay, why should we just completely destroy this part of Israel? Let's make Jabesh Gilead and Benjamin, they are get forced together, they will intermarry, and they will become just one wicked family together. Which again is where you get Jabesh Gilead all of a sudden being very connected to Gibeah and the Benjamites. And so, if you have been tracking along but missed some of these things. And real quick, let's just zoom back here to 1 Samuel 11. So again, Saul, just coronated at Mizpah, is going to rescue Jabesh Gilead, who needs help. Now again, they are given the opportunity to go ask for help from Israel, probably because Nahash thinks these people betrayed the rest of their country. They're probably not getting help. And they run to Gibeah of the Benjaminites. Saul responds. He calls Israel the second largest army by cutting up oxen and sending them around. Uh, it says that they muster troops. Both of them specifically say they mustered the first largest army or they mustered the, this army of 30,000 and 3,000. And then they destroy Ammonites uh, and the snake in the heat of the day. So, uh, again, if you've been tracking along, you're just like, okay, what are all the details we've been doing? I actually have two quick slides here. So, Jordan, if you could toss these up. There is first a side-by-side -side of Genesis 19 and Judges 19. So let's just go through the details. These are not all of the aligned details. These are ones that are just big, that jump out, and are enough to fit on one slide. So Genesis 19, you have Lot traveling out of his land. And Judges 19, you have a Levite traveling out of his land. Then you have Lot taken in by a kind man of Sodom. And you have Levite taken in by a kind man of Gibeah. Then you have wicked men who demand to have their way with Lot. And then Judges 19, wicked men demand to have their way with the Levite. The host refuses in, Judges, uh, or in Genesis 19 and offers his two daughters. In Judges 19, host refuses, offers a daughter and a, Le a Levite's concubine, two women. And then you have the wicked men refuse and demand Lot. And in Judges 19, the wicked men refuse and demand the Levite. And so you have a fugue of a story that's getting played in Genesis and now is getting picked up 
and played a very similar melody in Judges 19. But then just like a few, it's now going to get flipped on its head because here's the side-by-side -side of Judges 19 and 1 Samuel 11. Israel holds a ceremony at Mizpah to judge Benjamin. And then Saul, uh, or sorry, Israel holds a ceremony at Mizpah to coronate Saul, a Benjaminite. And then a Levite sends cut-up uh, concubine to rally Israel against the Benjaminites. And then Saul sends a cut-up oxen to rally Israel against the Ammonites. Israel musters the largest Israelite army, and Saul musters, it uses that specific word in both, the second largest Israelite army. You have a Levitical priest, Phineas, leads Israel to victory. And then you have, in 1 Samuel, uh, before in the story, we had a Levitical priest, Phineas, leads Israel to destruction. Gibeah is destroyed by fire. The Ammonites destroyed the city in the heat of the day. One clan did not come to fight Benjamin, Jabesh Gilead, and then one clan is threatened and saved by Saul the Benjamite, Jabesh Gilead. What's happening in this moment is the fugue is taking the melody and playing it in reverse. That the story is getting re-raveled from being unraveled. It's being re-sewn and stitched together. Because you had this moment in Judges 19 where it shows the people of Israel have completely become corrupt and evil. So much so that it says, you know how bad they were? Let's compare, compare them to Sodom and Gomorrah, these pagan cities in Genesis 19, who were so bad, God says, I've got to destroy them by fire. And these people who were not the people of God, now their story is imported onto the people of God, who have become just as bad. But then he sends Saul, who is going to take all of the details when Israel was falling apart, and he is going to weave them back together. Maybe to better speak, God, Yahweh, is going to weave them back together but by using Saul. Couple important observations of this, and I'm out of your way today. First of which, Saul passes a test that is given to him. The language throughout this story is very clear that this is a test for Saul. First of which, he meets a snake Snakes often show up in the midst of being tested. You obviously noted Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. Second, you see the pattern three begin to show up everywhere. Israel sends 30,000 troops. Judea sends 3,000 troops. Saul is then going to take those troops and divide them into three units. While the number three has many different signifying ideas throughout Scripture, Whenever you are in the midst of a test, you should look for the number three. It typically plays a significant role in some way. You could track it back to Adam and Eve again. When Adam and Eve are tempted with the knowledge of good and bad, it says that when Eve, she sees the fruit, she notices three things. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was desired to make one wise. Or then you have Gideon. Gideon is a judge that comes before 
And in the book of Judges, when he is called to defeat an army, he takes a fleece and he asks God to perform this test of there being dew, like laying it out overnight and there being dew on the fleece and not on the ground and then dew on the ground and on the fleece and then back again. And he asks three different times. And then God affirms three different times, I want you to follow me. And then he assembles a great army and it has 32,000 men. And God says, there's too many men here. This will look like it was just you like figuring it out and you having enough troops and enough resources. So I want you to first go to tell all the men who were freaked out they can go home. And so he does that and 22,000 men decide, this is the opportunity I've been waiting for. And they leave. And then he says, okay, but you still have too many with this 10,000. And so then he asks them, to, hey, give this test. And he says to Gideon, give the people this test and like ask them to drink water. And if they hold up their hand, they're going to be, you know, drinking it that way, then I want you to send them home. But if they bend down and lap it like a dog, then those ones I want you to keep. Why? Probably because the ones who are going to raise up their hands and continue to be vigilant are better soldiers. So he's like, I only want a small group, and I want the bad fighters. And how many stay? 300. And so Gideon then is given a test. Will he follow God into battle with 300 bad soldiers. And God says, go, and I will go before you, and it will be my victory. And Gideon, they go up, they have lights in a jar up on a mountain, and then they smash the jars, and light pours out, and their enemies destroy themselves. And they, destroy, they bring vindication to the people of God, and they bring, uh, restore peace without losing a single of the 300 men. Not to mention Jesus is tempted out in the wilderness three times. And of course, Peter's denial. When he's tested, he's asked three separate times. Aren't you with the one who is being crucified? I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And so this story is riddled with the number three. Before a snake. And you realize Saul's getting tested here. And Saul passes the test. And God uses Saul to bring life to the Israelites. But not only that, you see God's ability to bring a redemptive edge. I've heard uh, we focused on this last week, and again, the fugue is playing from last week into this week. I heard someone once phrase things like this. I thought this was helpful, that... God sometimes takes chaotic and broken and sinful situations and he turns them on their side and with that edge of the situation, he wedges that in and brings redemption. And it's like in all of the brokenness, God seems to find this small redemptive edge in which he undoes evil and undoes death and brings life. And you see that, that this monarchy that Samuel said, this is you rejecting God. This is going to become something that these kings are going to enslave you. They're going to take your men and your women and your property and your money. And this is going to go bad. But in this moment, God says, I can use the monarchy 
I can use what you have asked for and that you intended for evil, and I can intend it for good. In uh, the next chapter, Samuel 12, Samuel is going to give his farewell speech because now they've officially coronated Saul and the judges, the time of the judges are fully done. And so he gives this speech in which he is going to put three people on trial. First himself, he says, hey, tell me, did I extort any of you? Have I taken anything from you? Have I done anything unjust? If I have, I will then pay it back right now. And the people are like, no, man, you haven't done anything. You have been completely righteous. And then he puts God on trial. He says, hey, your God, Yahweh, has led you out of Egypt and out of slavery, and he led you through the Red Sea, and he led you through the wilderness, and he led you to the promised land. Has God done wrong by you? And they're like, no, God has done completely right by us. We understand that. And then he puts them on trial. And he said, in the midst of that, you said we don't want God for our king, but you want the king who is like all the other nations. You want one of you to lead you and fight your battles. And so, in the midst of that, even, Samuel says, hey, if you follow this king, if you pass the test and choose good, then life will come out of the monarchy. I will use the redemptive edge of this. But if you don't, then all the destruction that I've told you will occur will come about. And then he sins to show that this is true. A thunderstorm in the midst of what was the harvest season, May to June, which was harvest season for a number of reasons, one of which is because they didn't have rain and thunderstorms at that time, and so that they could harvest throughout that time without being interrupted. But because of such of a horrific thunderstorm, which again, regularly when prophets are going to show, hey, God is here and he is speaking to you, it's going to be something that comes from the skies and affects climate and weather. And so a thunderstorm comes and destroys probably a good portion of their crop that year. And they recognize it, like, oh my gosh, all right, we will totally follow. But there's a little detail in the story that's very missable that says, though Saul has passed this test, there's something that may prove this eventually is not going to go the way it is. This is eventually going to turn sour. Because it says, when Saul hears about the people of Jabesh Gilead, it says, the Spirit of God rushes upon him. And he goes and he fights and he frees the people. That's been said one other time of Saul, last week when he was told that he's going to be king. Samuel says, hey, I'm going to make you king, I'm going to anoint you, and then he says, when you're going along, you're going to see these prophets, and the Spirit of God is going to rush upon you, and you're going to prophesy, and that's going to be a sign to you that you truly are going to be king, even though you are from the smallest of the tribes, the Benjaminites. What's interesting is that there are five judges that are said to be filled with the Spirit, but they're not with the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God is literally the Spirit of Elohim, which is the generic term for God is the generic, everyone followed an Elohim. And so, there are five other judges and one monarch 
who are said to be filled with the spirit of Yahweh, the personal name for God. Those are Othniel, one of the first early judges, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, two other judges that are going to restore the peace to Israel, and the king David are filled with the spirit of Yahweh. But Saul is filled with the spirit of the Elohim. Now, is this to say that that is not the spirit of Yahweh moving within him? No, I don't think it's, I think it's saying, no, this truly is Yahweh working through Saul because he chooses the test. But he's, Samuel, or the author of Samuel is going to be putting in this detail to say, this test is passed for the moment, but it's not over. And so, as we said last week, Saul has a choice. God will use those who obey him and trust him in the midst of testing to bring about his plan of redemption for the world. Something to take that from that is that it, it matters what we do. It's one of the most beautiful truths and realities that you come into faith, you come into the family of God through no action of your own. You come in because Jesus has fulfilled the righteous covenant for you. There's nothing you could do to make God love you anymore, and there's nothing you have done that makes God love you any less. And that's a beautiful reality. What it doesn't mean, though, is that it doesn't matter what you do from there on out. That grace just becomes carte blanche to bring chaos into the world and then tack it onto the cross and say, oh, yes, but it's covered. Now, again, you can spend your whole life bringing chaos into the world and claim the cross, and in a true act of repentance, it truly is all nailed to the cross and buried with Jesus. But for the other heart that only you can discern, only you can stand before God and give an account for, account for there's the heart that says, I'll take the grace and I will extort it to my advantage. And this story is saying, hey, it does matter what you do. That there are going to be tests given throughout your life and those moments of test, those moments of suffering, those moments of it's going to take a certain level of faith to askew the resources or the common wisdom of man, and it is going to be a time to say, I'll follow you, even though it doesn't make sense. And when that happens, whenever a person, whenever someone in Scripture passes a test, life bursts out of them. One of the cooler examples is Abraham, when Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac. One uh, test he had already failed previously, by the way, when God said, I'm going to give you a son, and all of a sudden it's not coming, so Abraham and his wife Sarah decide to use uh, one of the, the concubines, one of the slave women, Hagar, uh, and that she is then going to produce Ishmael, and, God, and Abraham says, this is now the son you promised me, and God says, no, it's not. 
I said I'm going to give it through you and your barren wife. And so then he gives him Isaac, and then God says, okay, you didn't trust me the first time. I want to see if you trust me this time. Sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham, faithfully, even though he doesn't get how this is going to work, goes and to sacrifice Isaac, puts him on the altar, and of course, in that moment, God says, stop, no one's going to be killed today, and there's a ram instead that gets sacrificed in the place of Isaac. And as Isaac and Abraham come down off the mountain, the first thing it's going to do is they're going to go back home, and it's going to describe all these babies being born. Because in Isaac, or in Abraham's faithfulness, life bursts out of it. Or you're going to see... I guess what you'll see is this, that when God is offering you a test, when he's offering you a moment to trust him, even when it doesn't make sense, he's doing that because he's planning to use you in his redemptive story. And though I hate tests, though I wish God wouldn't give them, though I have, we have all these kind of bad associations with like, what's God trying to do? Is he trying to make us fail? No, quite the opposite. He's trying to show your faithfulness and he's trying to use you in the plan of his redemption. Tests, though uncomfortable, are actually the way that God is going to bring life. And here's one point for all of us who have failed tests. Because all of us in this room have failed tests. That God's power to redeem is greater than your ability to mess up. That God brings death out of life. What we mean for evil, he brings for good. And so that's true in way of like, even when I fail the test, I'm like, oh no, like, I've, like God is now no longer going to be able to bring whatever redemption he wanted to bring through me into the world. No, that's not true. God will, in the moment of when Saul's not going to bring redemption, he's going to go find David, and he will bring his redemption, and God can use all broken situations, even someone who he asks, like, will it go through you, and they say no, he can still bring it in through other means. And so even when we fail the test, God's going to work out his plan. But when you fail the test, God simply is going to invite you to repent and wait for a time when he will use you again. Because when we talked about those patterns of three and tests, one of the most palpable is the test of Peter. When he's asked three times at the crucifixion of Jesus, aren't you with him? I don't know him. I don't know him. I do not know him. And God, Jesus, is going to come to Peter and restore him and then use him. It says, Peter is the rock of which God will build his entire church. You and I are sitting here today and are a part of the church universal, the church historic, because of Peter who denied Jesus three times and then was restored in his faith through repentance and then was given another opportunity for the kingdom to come through him. And so for you and I 
who have and will fail tests. God is not through with you. God is still wanting to bring the kingdom through you. You merely need to come, repent, and be restored. And I invite you to do that, or as we act that out every week, through communion. And communion being a time of those who find themselves having denied Christ or failed the test, come and repent and are restored by taking the body that's broken for you and the blood that is shed for you. And for those of you who have passed the test, who in this moment are like, no, there is a time where God asked me to be faithful, and I did, and life is exploding out of you, then you take the body of bread, or the bread representing the body broken for you, and the cup representing the blood shed for you, that then bursts life and redemption out of it through the resurrection of Jesus. And so whether you find yourself mourning or weeping, failing, or being used, we come together as one common body, and we come together to take that which restores us and brings life. And so I ask you to come in a moment down the center aisles, tear the bread, dip it in the cup, and return down the sides. When you are ready, for those who follow Jesus, I ask you to come. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I'm grateful that you haven't given up on us, you haven't given up on me, you didn't give up on Peter. You haven't given up on everyone in this room. And Lord, that you invite us again and again to be a part of the redemption story, to even use the choices we've made that where we've failed and we haven't passed the test to become a redemptive edge in which you actually even can use our failure to bring about good. And Lord, that hearkens to the fact that you are far more powerful to bring redemption than we are even to mess it up. And for that reason, you are deeply worth worshiping. And we worship you through reenacting the ultimate redemptive edge of bringing life out of death through the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection to the life eternal that we are all invited to. I pray that we would come and take of these elements of death that which brought life. In Jesus' name. Amen.